Hello and welcome to this week's On The Continent, the European-focused Football Ramble Daily Show. I'm Luke Moore. And I'm Andy Brassel. Andy, it's come around again, another episode of OTC. How the devil are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Um, I'm scrabbling around the office at the moment because uh, I've got one of those um, magnet tables that you get from uh, built at the start of the season. This one's actually from 1718, but most of the teams are the same. You know, it's kind of like league ladders, but with little magnets. And um, a couple of them have fallen on the floor. I don't want to point the blame game of who's responsible for that in my household, but... um, I don't think it's my wife. Anyway, um, <laughs> Duisburg were jettisoned over to the the, the middle of the floor and um, Jan Regensburg aren't looking in, in great nick either. But uh, FC Union are clinging on, which hopefully is a metaphor for the rest of the season. So even in a, um, a week where we decide that we're not actually going to talk about German football, you still managed to find a way to shoehorn it in. Good on you. Um, coming, up, <laughs> coming up on today's OTC, we're going to cover the latest stuff happening in France. There could be some good news for Toulouse and Amiens fans. Uh, we'll do the return of Serie A, which is very exciting. And we'll find out just what in the hell is going on in Portugal. But before that, we begin with the news that La Liga is back tonight as we record this episode on Thursday, 11th of June. It starts with uh, El Gran Derby between Sevilla and Real Betis. And so to commemorate the return of one of our favourite leagues, earlier on, we caught up with our old pal and sparring partner, Spanish football expert, David Cartilage. Good morning, David Cartilage. How are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. Can't complain at all. Good, good. Very, very exciting time for you. We're on the cusp of La Liga returning with a huge game tonight between Sevilla and Real Betis. You must be very excited. And what's the, what's the latest uh, ahead of that game? Yeah, a lot of excitement, I think, um, for the Liga season, if not for the Liga season starting, but I think primarily it's the fact that it's Sevilla versus Real Betis, uh, getting this one all under underway, um, in my opinion, the biggest derby in the world, the most ferocious rivalry. So I think this is the best way to, to start things. Um, Betis fans have already been out in their city with the pyro, staying two metres apart, of course, at all times. And uh, yeah, the, the fans, even though they're not going to be there, seem, seem pretty hyped for this one. Now, David, this is the most atmospheric of derbies under normal circumstances. And it was interesting to hear uh, Ruby, the coach of Betis, talk about um, how, with his stats folder out, that only 21% of home teams in the Bundesliga have, have won so far. Um, now, he's obviously trying to talk up the fact that, that Betis have a good chance, despite, um, I think, having the lesser squad, um, of course, Sevilla are chasing the Champions League as well. But the Ramon Sanchez-Pijuan is incredibly atmospheric. And we talk about how different football is without supporters. But this is a situation in which it really could make a difference, couldn't it? Yeah, I think it's one of those games. Um, and and the, particularly the, the Andalusian teams, they rely heavily on their home support. And in this circumstance, I think you know how it how it is yourself. Um, I haven't been to those games the, the Biris, Sevilla's main fans, they provide a lot of noise. And, and generally, again, when the hymn rings out before the game and every single fan is singing that a cappella, it really is such a big you know, factor, I think, just to start the game. And then once you're in there, of course, you have that fan support. So, yeah, I can see what Ruby's doing by bringing that one up there. And I think it could be definitely a factor here. I think those teams who rely heavily on home support, I'm sure we'll touch on Atleti as well, another one. 
And those teams who play a high-intensity t- brand of football will probably be the ones who suffer the most here. Now, I, I guess the other question is, which are, are going to be the most influential players and what sort of nick are those players going to come back in? And it's, it's something we can't know until it, it actually happens. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to me that in France at the moment, they're talking a lot about um, Nabil Fekir and how... There are moments when he's looked one of the best players in a league out, out, outside the top two. You look at how he's played against the big teams, especially he's been fantastic. But obviously, he's a player who's had a little difficulty in in, in keeping weight off in the past. It's something they've, they've pointed out in France, particularly since uh, his his knee injury. That they really need a big moment from him, don't they? And he needs a big moment to really show the world that he's properly adapting to to Spanish football because it has been a kind of up and down first year it has been up and down at at times but I will say when he has been up he's been phenomenal and Betis play on a better level when when he turns up when when Feke is very much in the mood then you can see a notable difference in the level of of, of Betis and they had the same with Lo Celso as well before he left for Spurs, in that when he really, really turned it on, then you could see everybody else around him um, come up an extra level. And that's no disrespect to some other fantastic players. They're like Canales as well, who, who's been excellent. Joaquin as well. Uh, Emerson from Barcelona, who they got on loan as well, being really, really good. But it's very much Fekir's team. Um, he really drags them, I think, um, in his very own special way. And it is going to be troublesome, I think, for players like him, you know, to, to stop and start. Um, and, and it will be interesting to see what sort of shape he's in and, and how he approaches the game. But a lot of the feeling is in Spain that the slower players, I mean, you're saying about which players will will benefit. It's, it's those more methodical, slower players that the restart will benefit. So I'm looking at somebody like Oliver Torres um, at Sevilla, hmm. somebody who in, in, in Benega as well, you know, who, who will just... They were more methodical in their approach of the game, their vision of the game, waiting for things to happen, not waiting for things to happen. Instead, they, they they provide the judgment on that. And it could really benefit them. We could see that those characters being quite big from now towards the end of the season. Yeah, it's a huge game tonight, isn't it, as we record, and we're looking forward to seeing it. But but more broadly in Spain, David, what do you make of the schedule that's been agreed um, for, for La Liga? I mean, it looks like I think there's going to be games every single day between now and the 25th. Then there's a little break, and then after that, it, it kind of gets going again. It's a very, very intensive schedule, isn't it? And, and what, yeah. what's your take on that, and how's that been received? Yeah, yeah um, 110 games in 39 days, 11 rounds of games in five weeks. Um, and yeah, it's... It, <laughs> It's it's going to be it's going to be wild and 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 I think people have obviously got reservations and are expecting a lot of injuries and uh, you know some nobody really to find that much consistency. It's just going to be up and down. It's going to be unpredictable. Um, but I think the La Liga, La Liga's chiefs they did just wanted to make it exciting. They really wanted a package here. You, you listen to the way that they're talking about the schedule and how they're going to present games that they are going for this big, exciting package and they really want to grab the attention. They like what Bundesliga have done and they feel that they can improve it in certain ways with not only the the level of football in Spain that they feel is better, but also just generally the whole package and how they've arranged things. I think that's it, isn't it, David? I mean, I was in a, a, a meeting with um, some people from La Liga yesterday and you know, I wasn't invited, David, as you've no doubt been unsurprised <laughs> no, to hear. Neither was as I. Is, so. as, as is right. Yeah. 
<laughs> but I, I think it was, what was interesting is what, what you were saying there about the, the idea of creating a, a almost an entertainment experience. That's what they seem to be going mm-hmm. big on, isn't it? Because uh, they're taking yeah. the, the the real crowd sounds from from FIFA and and playing yeah. those out, so that they're not. They're quite keen to stress it's not sounds from the video game. It's sounds that FIFA have recorded for their bank. To yeah. Realistic sounds so, to put in the game. But also like painting the fans on the stands and stuff. I mean, how do people in Spain feel about that? Never mind the international market. You, you get, I think, very much two different crowds. You get those traditionalists who, who hate the idea of it and, and would rather just hear the on field sounds which is which is kind of yeah. what i want to be honest with you and then you get this as well and um, there's talk of tweets being put up um, and other like homemade sort of flags which just sounds absolutely horrendous to me personally i mean <laughs> other people might think this sounds like a nice little niche idea a cute idea but i, I think it sounds pretty pathetic personally um and yeah so they've got this and then you've got other people who don't really care they just want the they just want the football back and they just kind of accepted it or it's it's part and parcel of, of the modern game, of the way football's going, of the of the restart. They've got to do something. They don't want to just leave it empty, um, which I, I, I don't really have. I mean, that, if it has to be that way, then I'd rather have it uh, empty. But yeah, it, it is where it is. And yeah, there have been discussions with EA Sports. Um, they, they've been basically saying, you know, when a team is on the attack, then there'll be a certain generated noise coming over. There's a missed chance. You'll get, you'll get a big lot of, you know, a certain murmur. And they'll get a different type of murmur when maybe there's an injury or or something else like that or, or a sending off. So, yeah, they've, they've been really studying this, I think. They've, they've done their work, they've done their homework. You can't criticise the Liga for that at all. Um, but it's, it's just going to be interesting to see how it plays out, especially in this big game. It's a few real babies to, to start off with. This is not just a, a mediocre game at the bottom of the table. No, it's a really sensible move, I think, because it gives um, people who still are waiting, particularly in this country, for their own domestic league to come back a good uh, a good thing to get their teeth stuck into. Start as you mean to go on type type thing. I think yeah. it's a pretty shrewd move. But one one thing that caught my eye, David, around the return of La Liga is the fact that Real Madrid and Levante aren't playing in their home stadiums. Can you tell us a bit more about that and, and why that is? And if there's been any kind of dissension around that not being fair or whatever, you know, what's, what's the latest on that? Yeah, of course. Um, the issue with both uh, Real Madrid, the Bernabeu, uh, and Levante, the Ciotat, um, there's there's building work going on. Uh, Levante Stadium's a building site right now, um, and, and and in terms of Bernabeu, there's there's works ongoing there as well. Interestingly, from a Real Madrid point of view, the the club generally feel behind the scenes that this is actually going to work to their advantage. Um, playing that, uh, it's a it's a compact six thousand seat Alfredo Di Stefano Stadium. Uh, their training ground and apparently Zidane feels that they'll be more at home there they'll feel like they'll have a real advantage there um, and, and they can they can dominate games um, there so it'll be interesting to see how, how that one plays out for Real Madrid they, they seem very very confident and, and like I say Levante a bit of a building site at the moment so they're playing in La Nucia, um, bit of a <laughs> bit of a hike out of the out of the city, so that, that's going to be an interesting one as well. Especially for teams coming, uh, they're going to have to you know going to have to hotel up and then go out to the game and uh, La Nucia. and uh, so it'll be interesting to see that one. And I'm sure Levante if it looks like the same as Real Madrid that, that that they can create some sort of advantage there. 
I think the idea of playing at your training ground actually sounds really comfortable from a, a, yeah. a Real Madrid yeah. perspective. You know, just like wear your slippers to the side of the pitch, mm. you take off your bathrobe <laughs> and, and then you're straight on. It's like you do for this recording, Andy. Yeah, yeah, pr- pr- pretty much, pretty much. But, what, but just, when we I talk... I just keep thinking of a FIFA loading screen or something like that, you know. When you <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> but but when, when we when we talk of uh, little princes being kept in the style to which they're accustomed, uh, there's obviously been a lot of talk about Leo Messi and what sort of physical nick he will be in as he comes back. Now they're going to Mallorca, yeah. Barcelona on this first weekend. Uh, th- there was even speculation that he might not be fit to make it, but he is going to be fit to make it and there's understandably been a lot of attention on his his physical nick where do Barcelona feel he is at the moment yeah they, they, I mean they feel I think he's about 90% right now he had full training the other day and leading up to that there were a lot of concerns about his uh, his, his thigh and um, it prevented him since he came back from from taking part in full training he's been taken very easy Barca understandably have been going very easy on him Yet at the same time, you know, Messi's not a character. Messi's a character who would play when he's 50% fit and, and Barca probably need him as well because, quite frankly, nobody else does anything half the time. Um, so they, <laughs> they, they need him badly. Um, but, you know, he's 33 in a few weeks. Um, he's, he, he play, he's playing a lot of football. It's not like he's been rested. He's been handled expertly, shall we say, in terms of resting him and, and a lot, you know, somebody else coming in to cover for him and him thinking, oh, it's okay, I can sit out a few games. It's not like that at all. The, the pressure on Messi to perform, to be fit, is as intense as it was when he was 25, 26. Um, and, and, you know, you can you can debate who's, who, who is to blame for that, you know, um, about not properly looking after, quite frankly, the greatest footballer of all time. But yeah, yeah, it's it, it's going to be an interesting one to see. You know, I mean, if he's not fully ready, if he's just a little bit cold and he comes into a game, then who's to say he's not going to pull something a bit more serious and then aggravate and then be out potentially until maybe the last week of the season or two weeks. So it, it's it's a risk they're playing. David Cartlidge there, La Liga expert, but more importantly for me, Andy, bloody good egg. He really is. He really is. Let's turn our attention to France now, though. There was a really interesting um, bit of news that broke earlier this week, Andy, regarding the relegation of poor old uh, Amiens and Toulouse. Um, A quick recap first, though. In April, uh, French authorities said that professional sport couldn't return before September, which led the LFP to terminate the current season with 10 games to play, thus relegating those two sides. Uh, This week, it emerged, however, that France's highest court has suspended their relegation but rejected an appeal to restart the league in light of other leagues around Europe starting up again. So, bad news for Lyon fans, as the season won't be restarted, uh, because in its, in its decision published on Tuesday, the Council of State said there was no serious doubt on the legality of the decision to curtail the season and said that the judge validates the terms defined by the league, in particular for the classification of the league and the championships. But it also added... Um, the president considers that the league's administrative board could not legally rely in deciding to relegate the lowest two clubs of league and ranking on the fact that the current agreement concluded with the French Football Federation provides for a limit of 20 clubs, while this agreement ends on June 30th and a new agreement will have to be signed. 
The judge therefore orders the Professional Football League, in conjunction with the competent bodies of the French Football Federation, to re-examine the question of the format of Ligue 1 for the 2021 season in the light of all the elements relating to the conditions in which this season is likely to take place and to draw the consequences as to the principle of relegation before June 30th. So... If my reading of this very complicated situation is correct, Andy, and let's face it, OTC is, that may not be the case, we could see a 22-team league on next season. Is that right? Well, I don't know about your reading of the situation. I'm not convinced on the translation. I mean, competent bodies of the FFF. Are we sure about that? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a contradiction in terms. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure about that. It's um, it's a massive uh, pain in the ass for the LFP, the league, and uh, for the Federation as, as well, um, because they thought they had um, stumble-tripped their way towards sorting this out. And um, I, I mean, I think there are two sides to this. Firstly, I think for for, for Amiens, I, I do feel, um, as you say, they're hard done by. I think it's really harsh um, when you're in the thick of a relegation fight to just be cut off like that, not knowing how important the last game is. I realise there are a lot of unfair things about this situation and um, some teams and some clubs are going to have to wear some pretty bad consequences from it. But... Um, I wonder if relegation could have been cancelled and in, in most leagues could have been cancelled in this situation where they've they've had to curtail it. I have to say, Olivier Sadron, the, the president of Toulouse, coming out and saying, well, this is totally the right thing. It's like, come on, man. You know, if we'd have played for another five months, you still would have got relegated and you wouldn't have won yeah. a game in that time. You're terrible. No. Um, with Toulouse, it's slightly different because um, the financial situation is kind of related to the fact that they're... Um, being taken over at the moment as well, um, so it's it's not really about the the, the season that's that's just happened. Um, I mean, we we must add that even though the Conseil d'État has um, put it back to the the league, there's no real reason why the league the, the league have to look at it. It doesn't mean they have to say, okay, you're not getting relegated. Um, it, it does make it logistically more difficult. It does open them up to other legal challenges, I think. Um, in terms of the 22-team league, uh, I, I could I could understand that for a season, and I think it's probably the most sensible solution. Does the most sensible solution always happen? No, particularly not, not in France. And I, I think um, they've already told um, uh, Lorient and Lens that they're, they're coming up from Ligue 2, so they can't reverse that they just can't and um of course they'd cancelled the coupe de la ligue um competition from going on from um the end of this season so that the final between um uh, paris saint-germain and lyon whenever it happens will be the last ever game in, in the coupe de la ligue so that's kind of left a little bit more room in the calendar but not much you've got to bear in mind with the coupe de la ligue um the um, the teams that qualify for Europe were, were able to come in at a later stage anyway. So it, it didn't mess with their calendar. So for those teams that qualify for Europe, um, there, there simply will be no more space in the calendar and it'll be really tough to to, to fit the extra games in. Um, but yeah, I, I just think the, the LFP have, have, have been put in a difficult situation, but that they have jumped the gun. On, on on so many occasions the problem is is the LFP is a fundamentally weak governing authority 
And that's why Noel Legray and uh, the president of the FFF has been able to go over their heads on, on loads of occasions. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at one point, um, of course, a, a, a 22 team Ligue 2 was voted in. Now, this offered precedent to there being no relegation. By this point, Amiens and Toulouse had already been told they were relegated. So um, Noel Legray stepped in and said, well, look, we don't want um, Amiens to lose turning around and saying um, that um, that they that they they shouldn't be relegated. So therefore, I'm going to go against you and say that um, we can't have a, a 22 team league deux. Then I, th- I think you have to think on 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 top of that. Really, it all goes back to the point where the league was cancelled. Now, clearly, strictly speaking, it's a governmental choice. And we know that Emmanuel Macron, who in putting the block on um, professional football in France for the rest of the season, had also spoken to Angela Merkel to try and get her to do the same in Germany. So it, it, it wouldn't look as as it looks now, basically. Where and it's, it's not to, it's not to say that from a public health perspective, it's it's definitely the wrong decision to to cancel football in France, but it it does look weird next to the all the other big leagues around mm. it and you know there's there's no getting away from that it's more and more um difficult to to, to publicly justify so i think the, the the problem is that the lfp right up until the moment that the the, the government cancelled it and edward philippe the, the the prime minister came out and said right we're not having any professional sport therefore you have to cancel it um th- th- there was clearly no real relationship a real discussion between government and um the football authorities because otherwise they would have been prepared for this and they're not prepared for this whatsoever and you know none of this ever works without government um and the lfp have have, have just been really shown up over over the whole thing i mean their position is is really fragile and i think you have to look at the reform of the governing body because um they've had their pants pulled down by the government they've had their pants pulled down by the voting clubs now by the conseil d'etat they've got to go back to the 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 drawing board there was just no confidence in them to, to to govern the league from from the clubs i don't think andy just very quickly because i do want to move beyond all this admin um but but when so, is it fair to say, or, or is this a bit revisionist, that when the government in France announced that there would be no professional sport until September, could the French footballing authorities just have kept their counsel and thought, you know what, let's just wait and see what happens because that's a long time away. Yep. A lot of things could change. We'll keep our counsel in the meantime and make our plans. And if we're pushed to make a statement, we'll make a neutral statement and then we'll see how the how the dust settles. Would that Was that an option to them at the time? Or do you think they massively jumped the gun and by not doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you look at what they're having to do in terms of mopping things up for next season. They still want to play the two cup finals. Um, it's Paris Saint-Germain against um, Lyon, as we said, in the Coupe de la Ligue. And in the Coupe de France, it's going to be um, against Saint-Étienne. And um, because of UEFA's cutoff point at, of um, August 4 um, to end the, end the um, domestic seasons, and obviously to an extent there's there's some sort of give in that but um clubs and countries are being strongly encouraged to do that the plan is to have both these cup finals in mid to late july mm. so already that shows that it was possible to have 
behind closed doors football. Um, and the consequences of those games could actually be pretty big. I mean, like Lyon have come back to training this week and um, there's obviously a lot of focus on Memphis Depay, who's just come back from this knee injury, only got a year left on his contract. They're going to find it quite hard to get him to sign another one without any European football. Um, of course, they could get European football if they win the Coupe de la Ligue, which mm. is a bit of a long shot against Paris Saint-Germain, I think you could argue. Um, but that has an effect on them. You look at where Saint-Étienne are, and they're being investigated already by the DNCG, the French financial, um, the, the French League's financial control board, because they had budgeted with um, their wage bill and overheads, etc., to finish eighth in the league this season. They finished seventeenth, um, so that, that's Not a great, bit, that's a bit of an issue for them. S- slightly missed out. So these matches that might just be seen as tidying up the end of last season and as a bit of a play in to next season, they actually. They actually really matter. Mm. There you go. See, if you want um, the advice of two men in the shape of Andy and me who know what to do months after the event, come see us. <laughs> because we are the experts in backfilling that narrative and being wise after it's all happened. So that's what you come to OCC for. Elsewhere in France, I mean, you mentioned PSG there, Andy. They've decided to allow Thiago Silva to leave the club after a two-month extension, allowing him to complete PSG's Champions League campaign. The 35-year-old one-time best defender in the world will be allowed to depart the Parc de France after eight seasons. Just this morning, Andy, I've seen him linked with five Premier League clubs. He's apparently adamant he can play at the top level for two more years. Do you see that to be being the case? And if so, do you think those two years will be on these shores? I think they should be. That'd be um, great, wouldn't it? His, I mean, his preference is to go back to Italy, it, it seems. Right. Um, I mean, wherever he goes... Um, give or take the Premier League, I suppose, there's going to have to be a reduction on his absolutely monstrous What's wages. What's Tell me. Talk to me. We're, we're looking in, ex, in excess of a million a month. I mean, I mean he's, he's paid an absolute fortune. Um, and that's part of the reason for, for moving him Sorry, on. I'm up. still just processing that. That's why I didn't give you a reaction. I'm just still <laughs> processing it. <laughs> but, uh, quite, quite apart from the fact that um, Leonardo wants to make the squad a bit younger, no doubt he'll be going back to, to Serie A to grab a few more talents. As we were saying a few months ago on this, he's, he's, he's had his eyes on Lazio and a, a few players there led by Sergei Milinkovic-Savic for, for, for quite a while. Um, but Thiago Silva on his day... I think still is one of the best centre-backs in the world. His day is less often than it used to be, uh, admittedly. And uh, fitness is, a, mm. is an issue there. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I was saying like months and months ago when we were looking at his contract expiring and him not having um, agreed an extension with Paris Saint-Germain, I think a year at Manchester City, for example, I, I mean, obviously Guardiola is not going to sign him because he doesn't sign defenders for defensive positions does he but no I, I I think if if you'd have gone back a little bit in time how much differently would John Stones have developed at Manchester City with someone like Thiago Silva next to him I think very differently and mm. um, I, I think we, we can be thinking so much about you know the the long term you've got to think experienced players have their value as well and even if it's only um, a year's sort of guardianship at a club and you know those players turn into something else don't they you know you look at um Patrick Vieira and Mikel Arteta and what they turned into after after they were players or in in the back end of their playing careers going into to, to coaching um I, I don't think it is just about you know 
what you get out of them on the pitch with someone who's got so much experience so much fortitude as as him i think there are a lot of premier league clubs who would who would really really benefit from from having him on board but on the other hand if i was him would i want to turn my back on on champions league i, I, don't, I don't know uh, if maybe he feels he's done it all but mm. i don't know yeah, I feel, I feel like without trying to be like the little Englander about this, I, I feel at 35 years old to make your debut, it would probably be a very big club at, in the Premier League is a big ask. It'd be one of his biggest tests, I expect. And and he could, if he, he was if he was to able to, if he was able to take to the PL for the first time, I don't know why I called it the PL there. If he's going to take to the Premier League <laughs> for the first time at the age of 35 and also and and do it well, I mean that would be a real real feather in his cap it really would so you, you say that wherever he goes next you say that i think what is so impressive about Thiago silva as he's had injury difficulties but mainly been muscle injuries over over the last couple of years he's someone who can play off memory he's someone who you've seen him before for paris saint-germain not play for four or five weeks not train and just walk straight into the team and, he's a classy and put operator, in a blinding Andy, performance why. Yeah, he's but, not all. He's not all. He's not all blood and thunder. He's not all diving into tackles all over the place. He, he, no, he he's, can, he, yeah. no, he's not. He's, he's not. And I think so much focus has been on his leadership abilities, and especially when he got torn out over World Cup twenty fourteen. And bear in mind that he he wasn't actually playing in that semi final against Germany, but he seems to have yeah. carried the can for 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 a lot of it. People have, have talked so much about his leadership style, and lots of people have suggested that he's he's not up to much as a captain. Now I, I can understand that, but he is someone who's incredibly knowledgeable about the game, and it's taken the conversation away from the fact he's an unbelievable defender. He really is an mm. unbelievable defender, and, and I real you know he's he's not he's not a klutz on the ball either. You know, I think he's he's still no, got he's a good pass with ball. He's still got a lot to offer. He's still got a lot to yeah. offer. And you, and you would have heard um, David Cartledge earlier in the show talking about the return of La Liga. We did try and get an expert voice in to um, to pour over Thiago Silva's career in France over the last eight seasons, but sadly Joey Barton was unavailable for comment. Also, I'm consequent. Is it indeed? Man, it's so and so a camp since Philip. David James. Italy now, which also sees the uh, return of its league um, this week. It looks as though Mario Balotelli's time, though sadly, at his hometown club of Brescia is coming to an end. Uh, a move that was lauded as perhaps finally being the one that would get the best out of the controversial striker, who at 29 must now be considered a senior pro. And indeed, he was bought, he was wearing the captain's armband on occasion this season. It hasn't really worked out like that at all. Um, and Brescia, not just because of Mario Balotelli, by the way, find themselves rooted to the bottom of Serie A. Um, this is a story that caught my eye, Andy, because Balotelli is clearly a very, very divisive character, but someone who has headlines following him wherever he goes. How do you assess his career and where does he go next? I mean, is there is there realistically a top-flight club elsewhere in Europe that will take a chance on him at this stage? I mean... Inter, Man City, Milan, Liverpool, Nice, Marseille 
and now Brescia. None of them have ever been able to get a consistent tune out of him, with the possible exception of Nice, I suppose. And even then he fell foul of the management after returning late for pre-season and overweight, something he's now being accused of at Brescia too, despite his obvious talent. I mean, it's 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 a sad story really, isn't it? It is a sad story. And um, I, I think that the hometown part of it makes it the, the saddest. You know, he was... Um, so delighted to, to to go back to to Brescia where he grew up. Um, you know, we all heard at the time about his his, his mum being in tears on the, the the day that he signed because she was so delighted to to, to have him home, and that it hasn't worked out. I, I think they've they've expected too much of him from a the fact that um, you can't really expect him to be a, a captain when he's not been that guy for his, his, his whole career. And um, secondly, I, th- I think you look at the fact that th- the rest of the team's nowhere near on his level. And I think those two things have, have, have been a, a, a bit of a problem. Um, clearly he needs a certain type of approach to, to, to get the best out of him. And um, I, I think he made a big mistake leaving Nice to be, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think if he'd have really committed to that while he was there, I think in, in Nice, you look at how the, the environment's been great for a, a player like Atem Ben Arthur, who again has not recaptured the flame since he left there after regenerating his career there. I think you look at the fact that it's a lovely lifestyle. I think, especially from Balotelli's perspective, you get that mix of Southern France and, and Northern Italy there, um, which is which is quite nice. But just that, that little bit less pressure. And at the same time, the fact that it's a club that does have ambitions, that is on the up and up. Um, they've built, a, a, we've got a new stadium, new training facilities, pulling in the in, in, in the right direction. But it, it is, a, is a real shame, I think, that not that Nice didn't persist with him because I, I think they gave him some some chances but maybe that he didn't really persist with with them um but i i do think this story is 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 not really all about balotelli because i think he's he's had to put up with an awful lot of racist shit again and he said at the start of the season well i hope things have changed in italy but then you look at what happened at verona you know, where he got mm. mad and booted the ball in the crowd after everything that happened there. And you just think, you know, he's he's had to go through that really for his entire career. Not that it didn't happen in France, by the way. It happened at, at, at Dijon in an away game and he um, he complained to the referee and the referee booked him, um, as, as we remember mm. d- discussing at the time, of, of, of course. The officials dealt with that terribly and, and Dijon ultimately weren't punished for, for, for what went on. But I think this time, the fact that what happened happened um, with Massimo Cellino, and I think Cellino is a big figure in this because he is a guy who, and I expect there'll be Leeds United fans uh, nodding along with this, does not always throw straight dice. Uh, they signed Balotelli on this contract at the start of the season, which was one year, and two more conditional on them staying up. Now, obviously, they're not staying up. Um, so those those two aren't going to be activated. I wonder if um, Chilino's simply trying to clear the decks because there, there are 
there is dispute over the version of events from the club side and Balotelli's side. And because um, because Balotelli is the player and the personality that he is, it's all very easy to pile it on him. I think if you go back to, what, two, three months ago, when um, Massimo Cellino made a really racist comment about Mario Balotelli, actually after one of those those racist inc- incidents and then he just like sort of he said it oh it was, it, was, it was just a bit of banter it was just a just a joke and he never actually apologized for it and i don't mm. think many people could have blamed balotelli for, for for like walking from the club there and then to to, yeah. to be honest but i think when you're in a position like him when you've gone home to start again and home is the place where you're meant to feel the most safe and then you're not being supported from inside the club. I mean, that's yeah. just that's just absolutely uh, like it's it's absolutely unacceptable. So whereas I accept Balotelli has, has made mistakes during his career, let's not get it twisted with what's actually happened. Uh, and, th- and the fact is that Brescia, through one reason or another, you can talk about his professionalism. I don't really want to talk about that here. I think what we need to look at is the fact that Brescia, a club that invested in him, that should have supported him from various levels have failed to do that. And um, if he's not gone the extra mile for for them after that, well, I, I think that's pretty understandable. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of broadly agree. I, I think um, it's him going back to Brescia is one of those stories that at first glance you think, oh, that could be really good for him because it's back to his hometown club. He can um, he can feel at home. He can you know. I, I even understand the idea of him wearing the captain's armband on occasion because that gives him responsibility. He's twenty nine now. It might make him feel a bit special, and he's obviously a difficult character for lots of different reasons, many of which aren't his own. But actually, you dig a bit deeper in the story, and you go, well, okay. The owner of the club is a guy who's made racist comments in the past. He's burned through managers like it's going out of fashion. I think they've had a few this season as well. And mm. they're just not very good. Well, what's that going to do? Well, that's going to pile more and more pressure on him. And 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 obviously, that's not conducive to him being able to make a contribution, feel comfortable or, or, or really um, produce what he's capable of. And, and at, the best, at the very best of his game, to make no bones about it, he's one of the, he's one of the most talented forwards I've seen. Like he's, I've seen manager after manager say that if he if, if things were different, this is a top three in the world striker here, and that's why so many coaches clearly have taken the chance on him. Yeah, when and he I think scouted, I bet scouts are just like, wow, if he's on it, this guy is unplayably good. But unfortunately, for lots of different reasons, we just haven't seen it enough, have we? Yeah, yeah, but you know, you know what? I, th- I think that sort of talent maybe doesn't really work at, at, at Brescia, and as well mm. the fact that they've. Um, asked him to play with this ele- extra responsibility, and his wages imply that, his status implies that. But is he the if, highest paid player at the club, Andy, by a distance? Is oh it? yeah, comfortably. And yeah. I, I think that's part of the reason that that, that Chilino's seizing this opportunity to to dump him to to save a few euros. But you look at the way he's played for Brescia this season. When you see him play, okay, occasionally there's something spectacular, but it's basically him just trying loads of mental shots from, from anywhere. <laughs> like like, right. like 2008 or 2009 Cristiano Ronaldo, really. That yeah. sort of overdeveloped sense of responsibility, which people might find a bit unusual as an etiquette attached to Mario Balotelli. But I, I don't. I think he looks around the rest of that team and thinks, no, there's no one as good as me in this team. So, mm-hmm. so that leads you to a... 
a situation. I think it's something that James Horncastle talked about in, in his article about Balotelli in The Athletic this week, that you're never going to get the best out of like any player like trying a load of low percentage shots. I mean, what's the obvious upshot of that unless you have a real hot streak? Hmm. And, and just very quickly before we move on, I know you said you don't really want to get into Balotelli's attitude and I can't understand why, but I'm just trying to get into the mind of a, of, a, of a regular football fan here. They who follows European football and follows the Premier League, they would have seen or at least heard about Balotelli over and over again in the last 10 years or whatever it is. And the fact that he's never really properly done it and without drilling down into the detail... Um, they might they might think well the the common denominator here is is Balotelli himself so why are people making excuses for him what, what what's your kind of response to that um, well, I, I think he has found it found it hard to have a a, a place to settle and like, like I said before um, for me Nice was that place and um, he initially took that opportunity and and couldn't stick with it for for mm. whatever reason. I think maybe a turning point for for him there was when um, he didn't do particularly well um, around when they were trying to qualify for the Champions League, of of course, and um, when when they were were going through the the, the playoffs and he he got torn off a strip in public by Lucien Favre. And I wonder if that was the point where he lost him a little bit. Now, that's not to say, you know, it's up up to a coach to decide how to deal with an individual player. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder if they could have handled that a little differently. I wonder if, like I said, Balotelli could have handled that a little differently as, as as well. But you do wonder where next. I mean, he was he was speaking to Flamengo before he signed for Brescia. I don't know if they'd be interested again. But you are looking at the more exotic destination end of the market now. To answer your original question, I think. Yeah, I just wonder whether the, the place for him next will be somewhere with no pressure at all, where he's easily good enough at the level and he can just enjoy his football. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, not everyone is 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 going to ascend to the very top with hard work, dedication, intensity. Some people just aren't, aren't that character. I'm not blaming Balotelli entirely for his own predicament. I'm not doing that. But what I'm saying is the mental side of the game is as important as the physical side of the game at the top level. And for various reasons that people can draw their own distinctions from uh, or conclusions from. It's not really happened for him and it's been, been a long time now. So I do very, very much wish him well. I've enjoyed watching him play over the years. He's, he's unpredictable. He's exciting. He's interesting. He's unorthodox. And that's a huge part of the reason I love football. So I do genuinely wish him uh, very well. What we are making clear is that the official OTC position is we hope, having given him all that uh, unsolicited advice, that he goes to uh, Leon to replace Memphis, right? Absolutely. We would endorse that. We're right behind that campaign. Yeah, right now. there we go. Problem we is go. though, Mario, you won't be able to play till September. Um, which probably which will probably suit you. Er ist einfach überragend, ist super sympathisch, ein ganz, ganz toller Mensch und Fußballer. Und ich freue mich, dass er heute bei mir in der Sendung ist. Jaden, herzlich willkommen. Hallo Nobi. Wie geht's? I feel good. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Let's turn our attention to Portugal now. There's some troubling news coming out of there. Um, as the Benfica team were travelling back from their game against Tondela, which ended nil-nil, their bus, I mean, this is absolutely appalling, their bus was attacked on the motorway between Estadio da Luz and their training ground. Now, reports suggest that winger Andrzej Zivkovic and German midfielder Julian Weigl were showered with glass after rocks were dropped from an overhead bridge. 
Um, both the club and the league have denounced the attack, as you'd expect. But it got me thinking, Andy, actually. Um, is fan trouble in Portugal quite underreported? I mean, we're used to seeing stories coming out of places like Italy and Eastern Europe. But it appears to me, just on doing this show and being on nodding terms with the country's uh, football, um, it seems to me to happen all too often in, in Portugal as well. Yeah, and we're not just talking about crowd trouble here. We're talking about direct attacks on on the team, which is something that's that's way more serious. I mean, from Julian Weigel's perspective, I can only imagine how terrifying that is. Remember, he was on the Borussia Dortmund bus that was right. a, a, attacked before yeah. before that Champions League game with with Monaco. I mean, in both the cases of Zivkovic and Weigel. It could have been worse. Um, the club produced pictures of the the, the players the next day, and um, Zivkovic had some uh, little shards of glass around his eye, and he had a, a patch over his eye. Yes, yeah, um, awful. So it, it could have been way worse than than it actually was, but it's it's just disgusting, and um, it's, it's something that uh, Luis Felipe Vieira, um, the, the president of Benfica that they've promised to to look into it and and find the culprits um but it's contributed to a really quite uneasy time for for, for Benfica they've not been in great form either and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a minute because it's, it's not really the main issue here but is, is that what you're suggesting the motivation as misguided as it clearly is and as appalling yes. as it clearly is that's the motivation for the attack is what you're suggesting and that's yeah. what's been reported yeah I, I I think that's that's, that's what it Jeez, is that's unreal yeah I mean it's um it seems as if it's um, an ultras group that, that that are behind it. Um, so we we don't we don't know just yet, but it's, it's it's something that it has echoes of the attack on Alcochet's um, the sporting training ground. When of course se- several of the players got attacked there, loads of the stuff got vandalised. Um, Baz Dost was attacked, and of course loads of the the, the players were like rescind- unilaterally rescinded their contracts after that because they thought. That the club hadn't hadn't dealt with it. Now it's, it's interesting because Bruno de Cavalli, the um, previous president of Sporting, who was removed as president of Sporting following this, um, who uh, had, had been accused of direct involvement in it, um, it he um, walked away from that in, at, at the conclusion of the, the the court case, and he said, "Well, you know, I feel as if I deserve an apology from Sporting fans off the back of that." I think whether he was directly involved or not, and the courts have said no, um, the environment that he created uh, to attack the players is, is something that understandably attracted suspicion in the in, in the first place because he was someone who, you know, he, he, he tore out the players for um, a performance they gave, a, a game they lost at Atletico Madrid. And, you know, sporting can lose at Atletico Madrid. They're not as good a team as them and they've got far less money. And, yeah. um, you know, he, he, he tore out and um, suspended a load of the players over, over, over in a rant on Facebook. And he just can't act like that. And it, it does create a really hostile environment. I don't think there's any, any real doubt about that. And um, I think... The timing of this Benfica thing is is a real shame because we had that story last week where we were talking about the Porto Ultras who who wanted to follow their team um, to Famalicão for that first game. They, they sent a letter to um, the Director General of Health for Portugal, Graça Freitas, and they had quite a cordial conversation. It was it was all cool, and you know we, we have heard fans outside the stadium. We we, we heard it again for. Um, 
Benfica at Portimonense on um, on on um, Wednesday night. So it's, it's clear that there are a lot of responsible fans out there. Unfortunately, there are also this fringe of of nutters, and it's it's something that. That, that, that they've got to do something about. It's, it's a real, real concern. And especially at a time like this, it's the last thing that the authorities need to be thinking about. They're going through this painstaking protocol. And for some of these clubs, it's been really difficult to get their facilities to the point because, you know, we, we can assume, I think, in all countries that all top flight facilities are top of the range. That's definitely not the case in Portugal. And some of these clubs have had to add two or three inspections in the top flight to get to the sort of point where they can fulfill all these hygiene protocols. The last thing the authorities need to do and need to be doing is, is, is dealing with this as well. Yeah, and regardless of all that, and I'll just add further kind of weight behind the incredulity that you're, you're, you're talking there. Like People deserve to be able to go to work whatever the circumstances are, with not the chance that they're going to be murdered on the way home. I mm. mean, we're talking about something that could have killed every single person on that bus. If that if that rock goes through the windshield and knocks out the driver, people would quite literally die. Mm. So yeah. it needs to be t- it needs to be dealt with in the seriousness that it, that it warrants. It's absolutely abhorrent. It's ridiculous. It should never happen. And um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I hope. That this is this is dealt with swiftly, and that the perpetrators are brought to justice as soon as possible. Because regardless of the situation and the circumstances, you just cannot have this kind of thing happening. No. It's one thing to to you know kind of voice your disconcern, sorry, voice your concern and your your discontent with the performances of your football team. I mean, for goodness' sake, we're not talking about that. We're talking about people literally putting players' lives in danger. It's it's unacceptable, and and I can't, I honestly can't deplore it enough it's it's outrageous yeah and i think that feeling that it needs to be eradicated is something that's held very widely in portuguese football it's really shaken the portuguese football community and actually Sergio Conceição, the coach of of porto said after the win at, over maritimo on um wednesday night he said um that the virus of fanaticism is as dangerous as covid19 and you can understand where he's coming from we're not going to finish the show on that kind of uh, negative note, though, because we are going to move to games of the week. Um, Andy, last week, uh, Leverkusen 2, Bayern 4. I said to the guys on Monday that as soon as Bayern scored their fourth, I turned it off. First of all, I was I was gutted that Kai Havertz wasn't featuring. And it annoys me because, <laughs> Andy, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that Bayern have now played... Dortmund without Sancho and Leverkusen without Havertz. That's right, isn't it? Or Dortmund without proper Sancho. He, he, he came yeah. out and like sort of, you know, third quality Xerox of Sancho had a little jog about, but the poor guy wasn't at his best. And nor was Emre Can either, which made a massive difference. You're right. Yeah. And then Bayern Munich played, um, have they played against it? They haven't yet, have they? Yeah, they, they have. They played in the semi-final of the DFB oh, the Pokal. Cup, right. And they yeah. um, won 2-1 against Eintracht Frankfurt, who were wearing a Black Lives Matter emblazoned shirt, which was, was great to Very see. Nice. But um, the final, uh, because Leverkusen beat uh, Saarbrücken on Tuesday, is between Bayern and Leverkusen again. Okay. And I think if, if we want any chance at all of just this slither of light of a, a title race left, then Borussia Mönchengladbach need to step up and beat uh, Bayern on Saturday. Uh, but that's probably not going to happen. Anyway, my, my, Bayern have the week last week? Bayern have no uh, Lewandowski and Müller, we should point out. Both suspended still, for that game. Still not going to happen. Um, yeah. what, was your, what was your game of the week last week? <laughs> I can't remember what my game of the week was last week. I haven't written week. it down. 
Oh well, can't have been that good. Uh, this week I'm going for um, <laughs> <laughs> this week I'm going for El Gran Derby, as we heard from David Cartledge earlier. Uh, Sevilla v Betis, uh, which is tonight as we record at nine o'clock. I'm really excited for that because it's usually a really intense game, and I'm looking forward to, to watching it and, and actually seeing how the intensity stacks up when there's no fans in the stadium. And a little tip for those of you out there listening: El Gran Derby translated into English uh, means the big classic. Andy, what about you? <laughs> Well, seeing as you've stolen that game off me, um, I'm going to have to go for the return of Italy. Uh, Friday night, the plan is uh, Juve against Milan in the second leg of the Coppa Italia semi-final. Now, the reason I say the plan is because as of last night, Wednesday night, um, the health authorities have still not completely signed it off. And they've not given oh, yeah. okay. they've not given a, a, a kickoff time, which is... Uh, not absolutely ideal, it's, is it? This is eight forty-five on my uh, my thing here, but yeah, I mean, that's, that that's, that's the plan, and that's what BT Sport are, are hoping for, I believe, who <laughs> are broadcasting the game. But it'll be really interesting because um, Cristiano Ronaldo, who scored the equaliser in the first game, which was of course a very very long time ago now, it was like four months ago, uh, with a very shonky penalty at uh, San Siro at the end. You know, if if you sort of looked at your phone and said Siri, show me the most wanky example of the new handball rule. I think that yeah. the, the, the penalty award from that game would would, would come up. Obviously, uh, Ronaldo needed no second bid and then scored it. But I can't think of any player who will have benefited more from a little bit of time off. Now, I know it's not time off as they've, they've not been on holiday, but in terms of him being able to go back, do remedial fitness work and... He's just been yeah, doing sit-ups right. the whole time since it stopped. Since the minute it stopped, he's been doing sit-ups all the way through till now. Well, I think his life is just one big, long trail of sit-ups, briefly, yeah, inter- briefly interrupted by him coming on the pitch to play for Juventus or Portugal. I, I and think, also interrupted I think by um, judging other people who are not doing sit-ups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would, you would, Including you members would, of his own family. You would, you would think so. I, that, that was one of my favourite sort of behind-the-curtain glances of, of of lockdown, where just his, his kids come and sit on him while he's doing his crunches, and he's just yeah. being squashed by them going, Daddy's working! Daddy's working! Andy, Andy, the best ever picture on, or any kind of bit of content from Cristiano online was on Instagram, where... The caption said, Spend it, love spending time with the family. But the picture was just him standing on his own on a boat with his top off. <laughs> <laughs> his family weren't even in the picture. So his abs are his family, basically. Yeah, that's why he refers to them, the family, yeah. Fair, fair enough, fair enough, I would say. But I think there's, there's a lot in this game because um, obviously it would change the complexion of, of, of Milan's season if, if they were to be able to, to get to the Copper final. Um, there's a lot of tension there at the moment. There's a lot of tension, it seems, between Gazidis and and, and the players. Ibrahimovic is, is is brooding, which is uh, never never a good look. Of course, he'll probably be gone at the, at the end of the season, but uh, he's, in, he's in a bit of a mood by all accounts at the moment. Um, and Juventus, not only do they never really lose at home, but they're used to playing at home behind closed doors because they played that huge match with Derby d'Italia before the shutdown against Inter behind closed doors. So I think it'll be hard. And also, Ronaldo, after three months rest, he's going to be absolutely fearsome. Like, like, can you imagine? He's going to have the best season running that he's had in years, I think. Yeah, it's going to make a real difference. I was thinking about this yesterday. I think it's going to make a real difference in the title race in Serie A. It has to. But he's just such a good... 
obviously such a good player and he's going he's gonna to be so fresh. Um, I think it could be the, the difference between Juventus winning the title, actually. Um, very, very quickly before we go, Andy, because we have got to wrap up now, can I just ask you a, a quick curveball? Something I forgot to ask David earlier and, and we didn't mention. In On the return of Spain and Italy, are we seeing VAR returning in those countries? Uh, yes, we are. Okay, right. Fine. Okay. Interesting. I was hoping the answer would be different. Uh, let's uh, wrap up there. Um, do, do, thank you very much for listening. Do check out uh, the preview show tomorrow with Marcus and the gang. That should be lots of fun. Also look out for some really interesting, fun changes and, and good stuff from next week. Of course, when we see the return of the Premier League, lots of exciting things happening on Football Ramble Daily for that as well. Um, all that's left for me to say is thank you very much to you, Andy. Thank you. And it's goodbye from me as well. We'll catch up with you soon. This was a Stakhanov production.